House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Daria Faravar. That's a name you might not have heard before. That's because until five weeks ago, she didn't have the word representative in front of her name. She does now, and you'll hear a lot about her in the coming weeks and months and years. Representative Daria Faravar hit the ground running on January 9th, and she hasn't slowed down. I'll stop now and say you're listening to Capital Ideas. It's called that because it's the podcast in which members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol to talk about ideas. Daria has a lot of ideas, good ones. You'll hear about them shortly, but first I should say she lives in Seattle, Lake City to be specific, and was sent down to Olympia by the folks who live in the 46th Legislative District, which I'll let her describe for you. Thanks in advance for taking a few minutes out of your life to take in today's conversation. We recorded this at the State Capitol on Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, and here it comes. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Daria Faravar of the 46th Legislative District. This is in, I guess you would call it far northeast mm -hmm. Seattle is exactly. where the 46th is. Exactly. Wedgwood, Vierage, Windermere, uh, it includes a part of Wallingford now, uh, the Aurora Corridor. It's a pretty diverse area. And Lake City. And Lake City, my home. I love Lake City tremendously. This is your first year as a state lawmaker, and you are already the vice chair of the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. Yeah, I'm also on our Community Safety, Justice, and Reentry Committee, formerly Public Safety, and also serving on Capital Budget. The Capital Budget has much longer to finish doing its yes. stuff yep. because it is a, a fiscal committee. Yes. Uh, the other two are coming up in, I think, 10 days mm -hmm. against a pretty important cutoff date. Yes. How are things going in those committees, particularly civil rights and judiciary, because you're in a leadership position there, oh. you've got responsibility. It's kind of almost on your head. <laughs> I, I think it's going well. You know, people keep asking me uh, throughout these, what is it now, the fifth week, uh, how things have been going. And I, I think they're going fine, but we'll have to, I guess, wait and see. Um, we've moved a lot of bills out of committee and we've got a pretty long list uh, for exec, I think. This Friday and next week, we've got um, a, a little bit of wiggle room, so we're able to really uh, take our time and be intentional with the more complicated bills that have uh, come before us, which is really nice and I think a luxury that many committees don't have. I like to kind of translate for people who don't hang around here very much. When a lawmaker says something is up for exec, oh, yes. that's when the entire committee is going to vote on whether or not to advance a piece of legislation to the next step, whatever that might be. Thank you for translating. <laughs> That's right. The one that I think I have to do every week is when someone refers to dropping a bill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Confusing not, terminology. Yeah. <laughs> so you came here as a person with a background as an advocate. Mm -hmm. That's a broad term. Mm -hmm. I, I know who and what you advocated for because I've studied your background a little bit. But rather than me stating it, why don't you talk a little bit about who you were and still are, yeah. but who you were before you became Representative Faravar. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. 
I am very lucky in that I've had a career being, as you said, the, the broad term advocate, which many folks don't get the opportunity to actually be paid to do the work that they love, the advocacy that they love to do. So I, I feel truly, truly honored to have been given that privilege. Before I was elected, I was the public policy director for a nonprofit organization called Disability Rights Washington. And there I worked on a wide variety of issues. Some of my work touched education, it touched policing, the Department of Corrections, healthcare, voter education was also a, a big part of it. The area that I most closely focused on was that intersection of behavioral health crisis, so we're thinking mental health and substance use, and the intersection between that are criminal legal systems and homelessness. Um, and individuals who would be constantly cycling through these systems, not getting the support they need to become healthy, productive members of our communities. At what point did it occur to you, I should run for office? I should become a state lawmaker to be more effective at the things that matter to me and yeah. to the people that I care about? Yeah, it was something that I thought about for some time before I actually decided to take the plunge. And that was in part because I had I had people close to me asking me to think about it, asking me to consider it, which was in, incredibly lucky and, and um, you know, felt honored that folks would think of me in that way. You know, I, I think like with many of my colleagues, one of the, the reasons I decided to really take this plunge was just, you know, frustration and knowing that we could be doing better and knowing that we could be serving individuals better and knowing that I would hopefully bring a perspective that hadn't always been well represented in the legislature and just having that perspective around, right, changes the conversation we have, changes the way that we look at the different issues. And having that background of being really a disability advocate from the perspective of folks with disabilities themselves is a voice that really has been missing and really feeds into kind of the theme of the work that I've been trying to do this year. You mentioned having a new perspective or a, a unique perspective. Part of that, I'm sure, is the fact that you are the first Middle Eastern woman and the first Iranian American woman to be elected to the legislature, yes. not just the House, but the whole ball of wax down here. Yeah. Um, I think that has to feel like an honor, and it also has to feel like maybe a little bit of a load on your shoulders right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a tremendous honor. I stand on the shoulders of community members that have tried and uh, not succeeded in the past. And it took a lot of support from my community and mentorship from, from those folks who have tried and either done it successfully or not, right, uh, running for office, that is. It, it is true that it, it is also a lot to carry. Not only am I the first Middle Eastern woman elected to the legislature, but I'm the only Middle Eastern person in the legislature right now which I really, I don't take lightly. You know, we had the fabulous, incredible former Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, which would have been an honor to, to serve with him and with his leadership. Um, and so without him, I'm, I'm the only, I keep joking around that I'm, I'm Tigger. I'm the only one. Um, and uh, it is exciting, but it also means that your community, your entire community looks to you to be the voice for the community. And now, um, and again, even within my community, my perspective is different because I, I consider myself Iranian-American. Right? I was born here. Um, my community is here. I'm very much connected to my cultural community, but my relationship to my cultural community is ultimately different because I've been raised in this country. What I'm trying to do is, is use this privilege wisely and use it as an opportunity to pass that mic 
And uh, I firmly believe that we cannot and we shouldn't be a voice for the voiceless, but we should intentionally create space for communities to speak their own truth and uh, present their own stories. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to do that for the Middle Eastern community. Right now, I guess you could form a Middle Eastern caucus, but the meetings would be <laughs> very short and yes. lonely. Yes, yes, that is, that is true. I'm, I'm lucky, though, to be part of such a big and strong Members of Color caucus. It's really incredible to look around at the diversity coming in this year and, and overall of the House right now. This is the largest contingent of, of Members of Color that have ever been in the legislature and also the largest number of women of color that have ever been in the legislature. I think there was just a photograph taken in the last day or two that I looked at and thought, that is impressive. I would just agree. It, it is absolutely impressive, and it's really inspiring and exciting to see, you, you know, I mean, frankly, the political capital that comes with that, which ha having such a large portion of women of color and I would argue most, if not all of us, with the same set of values and, and goals for our communities. I don't want to harp on this too much because I know that you probably don't just want to be identified as the first Iranian-American woman because you represent about 145,000 right. people. Right. Tell me about the legislation that you are sponsoring here yeah. as the representative of the people of the 46th District. Yeah. I think I, right now I have about, uh, I believe, seven bills Um a handful, I believe three of those are actually um, state government bills having to do with representation either through our voting systems or in our policy decision making. One of the bills that I am really excited about is the Nothing About Us Without Us Act. This is a really simple concept, and the idea is that if we're going to be making uh, policy decisions about underrepresented communities, then they should be at that table making decisions with us. And there are quite a few boards and commissions that are governmentally related. Yes. I believe this is where this bill is going to have an impact. Right, right, exactly. So the uh, bill is written right now. It talks about um, statutory entities, and it explains them as task forces, work groups, boards, commissions, advisory councils, a really broad group of entities that we need to be thinking about this with. We are you know, working closely with different stakeholders to really try and come to as close to perfection as possible with legislation, because ultimately what we're trying to do is really legislate a cultural shift. And it's a shift that's already happening. You know, I'm seeing this conversation happen in the different committees I'm on around trying to make sure the folks that are going to be impacted by these choices have a say in the process. So it'll, it'll, it'll take us a little bit to get exactly where we need to be, but I, I'm confident we can do it. It seems amazing that this bill would even be necessary. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a bill that I've been working on in community for about, I think, three years now. And it really started within the developmental disability community. And I was actually brought into a conversation amongst um, self-advocates or folks with developmental disabilities themselves and my seatmate, Representative Paulette. And they were talking about this concept because there had just been a situation where self-advocates weren't included in the conversation work group got together, provided recommendations. And, you know, the legislature takes those recommendations really seriously and often acts on them. And the legislature acted on those recommendations. And those recommendations turned out to be the polar opposite of what self-advocates actually wanted for themselves and for their communities. And so if we're going to invest all this time and resource into trying to bring together all the right stakeholders, we really truly need to have all of the right stakeholders at that table. 
And what is the status of the Nothing About Us Without Us bill? Yeah, so it's I'm going to uh, executive session to be to be so to be voted out of the committee <laughs> on Friday, and we are about to introduce a proposed substitute to really clean things up, tighten up the implementation of it, and really make it clear what it is that we're trying to do and the different mechanics of how this should operate. And that's the kind of thing that frequently happens on a bill. It gets introduced. It gets investigated, picked apart, Mm -hmm. and put back together again in a cleaner and better form that will have fewer unintended consequences down the road should it become law. Right, exactly. It's it's really the beauty of having a 105-day session. We're able to really take the time to really truly improve it along the way and not feel that you have to rush it through. One of the things I noticed that impressed me about the Nothing About Us Without Us Act is that the list of co-sponsors is long and deep and very bipartisan. Yes. That's encouraging. Yes. You know, just as I mentioned, you know, this is a conversation that's happening across the aisle and in both chambers, right? Folks are really understanding and at least bringing to the surface in uh, a very uh, clear way that this is how we need to move forward. If we're going to talk about criminal justice reform, we need to make sure there are folks at the table who both have been survivors or victims who have been harmed in the process and also folks who are going through that criminal legal system as well, involved in those decision makings. And I think ultimately it's about balance. It's about trying to make sure that we're really doing it right the first time around. And so I'm absolutely thrilled that it's a bipartisan and bicameral piece of legislation with a lot of support. It's very encouraging. And what else other than that, which I would guess would be kind of the marquee bill for for Representative Farivar, what else are we working on here? There's uh, a couple more, I guess. Um, Another one that I would bring up uh, is lucky number 1313, (laughs) which was actually the First bill I dropped, so an auspicious start to a bill drafting and submission. This is a pretty technical bill, but one that would make a huge impact in Washington. So this is legislation that attempts to start creating parity between Medicaid and Medicare. It would increase the federal poverty limit for one of the Medicare savings plans. Originally, as was proposed, was to uh, from 100 to 138 percent, which is roughly the difference between about ele- making $1,100 a month and roughly $1,400 a month. So still, folks who don't have all the means they need to live a comfortable life in Washington. It just passed out of the healthcare committee with an amendment to bring it down to 135%. And what would be the effect of these number shifts? Yes, that's on a great. Human life. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yes, it gets very technical very quickly, and I, as you can tell, I go to a rabbit hole. The difference would be that we would increase coverage, so cost sharing and um, premiums for about 46,000 people as it passed out of committee. That is a huge shift. I mean, when we're Talking about the actual income people are bringing in and the coverage they're getting, I mean, people are having to make the tough choice between paying for prescriptions and having food to eat for the week. They're making the choice between paying rent and actually going to see the doctor. And so this has to be part of our conversation, part of our plan to address also housing instability and the homelessness crisis, because folks are having to make these tough decisions day in and day out. And we have the means to really make a difference. Uh, and I would also be remiss if I didn't mention, well, there's a considerable cost to the state for uh, making this parity possible. It comes with a 50% federal match, which is not something you get to say about most legislation. 
it's difficult to just leave that money on the table and say exactly. we're not going to improve life here. Right. We're going to leave that there. Good luck. I would I would think that many of these people that might benefit from this could be seniors on fixed incomes. Exactly. Seniors and folks with a substantial disability that has shifted their their uh, um, eligibility status. You're exactly right. Another important bill that you're working on would increase the chances of victims of childhood sexual abuse obtaining some sort of justice. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, I'm really excited to be working with the Washington Association for Justice on this. And it is, I think, probably one of the shortest bills I've ever been a part of drafting. And what it does is it eliminates the statute of limitations, so the amount of time somebody has to file a civil claim for damages, right? Uh, Very often, you know, a a monetary component, right? Um, Specifically for folks who experience childhood sexual abuse, a really absolutely horrific situation. I'm really excited about this bill for a couple different reasons. First of all, because it really allows survivors to come forward in their own time, on their own terms. You know, we have a lot of different brain science that we've been looking at to develop legislation, for example, about the juvenile justice system. And our brain science shows us that trauma significantly changes the way that our brains work. And um, sometimes our brains are working to protect us and outright block out an experience. And it can take a lot of time and a lot of work to try and uh, address that and uncover that and be able to move forward. And so the current statute of limitations is three years. Three years. So for example, if you are five years old, you would need to be healing and understanding what happens and moving forward to seek justice at eight years old. That seems a little extreme. Yes, exactly. What is the status of this good-sounding bill? Yeah, this one passed out of our uh, civil rights and judiciary, and it is on to appropriations. And you might think, why is this going to appropriations? Well, one of the pieces of this bill is it's actually retroactive to make sure that that five-year-old can still have the opportunity to pursue justice, even maybe when they're 40 years old, for example. And the reason it might be in appropriations, I assume, is because it could cost the government some money. Are there situations in which these survivors might be suing a government entity? Yes, that is quite possible, right? Uh, For example, it could have been something that happened at school, right? And the schools would have to come to the table on that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just also add that while this might seem like a big step for us, we're certainly not the first to take it. Uh, There have been four other uh, places that have done this. For example, Maine and Vermont have this uh, same statute on the books. And so knowing that this is the path forward and we are jumping on that bandwagon, if you will, to make sure that survivors get an opportunity to seek justice. So you've seen a little bit of data, I suppose, on on the fact that this might be a, a, a good bill to pass. Yes, exactly. This is the point in just about every Capital Ideas podcast where I say... I know that you're busy, like the other legislators around here, and that you probably have other obligations. I know that you were meeting with some constituents immediately prior to this conversation, and I am going to let you go here pretty quickly. I do want to give you one more chance, however, to speak about Daria and tell me, is there anything else that we haven't touched on? This is your first, but probably not your last appearance on Capital Ideas, but it is the only one for today. 
I guess I would just clarify for folks, you know, uh, behavioral health is one of my top priorities. And based on the bills I discussed today, I mean, uh, you're not you're not seeing it very clearly, at least the Medicare bill has, I think, significant implications for our behavioral health system. And I think this year in looking at behavioral health, I think most of the heavy lifting is in the budgets in the operating budget around workforce and in the capital budget around new types of facilities. And I'm really excited to dig into those conversations and really make sure that we're delivering for Washington and truly providing a strong behavioral health full spectrum of services from outpatient to inpatient of varying degrees. And uh, I think folks will really see that when the budgets come out. I will add at this point as part of my clarification for non-legislative people is that a whole lot of what gets accomplished here doesn't involve a bill. Mm -hmm. It involves the budget and it involves what's called provisos in which an individual member has a what she thinks is a great idea and will speak with the appropriations committee and possibly have some money put into the budget to accomplish a worthy goal. I'm guessing that even though you're a brand new legislator, only been here five weeks, you've probably come up with some provisos for projects that you would like to see come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. Some new ideas from me and some carryover and kind of building off of existing work that's being done. King County, of course, is uh, part of my district, the King County area, and they have a number of different behavioral health programs that are doing well but need funding to continue doing that good work. So I'll be uh, supporting some of those asks as well as trying to extend a program. As part of the True Blood lawsuit, which is a um, rather complicated lawsuit about folks with behavioral health disabilities ending up in our criminal legal systems, as part of that lawsuit, a series of what's called diversion programs were established all across the state. Uh, I believe there are five or six still running today, and they're running because the state uh, was willing to invest in uh, a one-year extension of those programs. In the proviso that passed to extend those programs, there was also a report required. It'll be due uh, this summer and it will provide recommendations on um, the future of those programs. I feel relatively confident that we're going to see good results from those programs, the programs that I've been able to go on site visits with and uh, understand at a more granular level how they're operating in the community and the value add there. However, the, the timing uh, wasn't, wasn't quite right, and I wanted to make sure that these good programs wouldn't have to shutter before that report came out, and so I'll be sponsoring uh, Proviso to extend uh, those programs as well. And I guess the last thing I'll mention here is around our uh, carceral systems and, and healthcare provision generally, especially behavioral health. I don't think it's a secret to anybody that the healthcare that folks get access to in jails or prisons or uh, you know juvenile prisons, you name it, is is not great. Uh, we could be doing a lot better there. And I think part of the issue is around uh, coordination. And so I'm I'm hoping to see in the final budget a proviso that establishes a roundtable to bring all of the different agencies together who have a hand in correctional care. And I guess broader than correctional, but care in facilities of total confinement. Because we also have to include in the conversation the folks who are going back and forth between our state hospitals and jails as well. The forensic behavioral health system, too. It sounds like you didn't just come down here to mess around. Um, <laughs> I, I do wish you luck. 
these are some ambitious plans, and this is the place to accomplish those. I have really enjoyed speaking with you, Representative Daria Farvar of the 46th Legislative District, and this has been Capital Ideas. Thank you, Daria, for joining me. I hope we do this again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that as well. This has been a few minutes longer than your typical Capital Ideas, but I think that's justified. If you like what you heard and you haven't gotten around to subscribing so you'll never miss another episode, you can do so on any of the usual podcast sites or by visiting the House Democratic Caucus website at housedemocrats.wa.gov and hitting the media button at the top of the page. This is your state government. What goes on here matters. Capital Ideas is one good way to meet the people who work for you and to learn a little bit more about what they're doing on your behalf. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening.